Hello, glove smellers and ghostbusters and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I am your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host. Michael Hull. Our guest today is a marvelous film critic and entertainment journalist who is currently the editor and critic over at ScreenCrush.com. Uh, his byline has also appeared at The Village Voice, The Dissolve, and IndieWire, among others. And he was the on-air host of IFC News on the Independent Film Channel. He is the author of the book Marvel's Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular. His new book, Opposable Thumbs, is a biography and history of Siskel and Ebert. And it is on shelves on October 24th. Folks, here's our Matt Singer. Hi, Matt. Hi, guys. How's it going? Man, so well. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, first of all, congrats on the book, which is just terrific. Um, I, I told you this actually off air, so it's honest. I devoured it in about three days over the summer, uh, and I it's, it's so smart and so well-researched and so insightful. Um, and, and affordable, too. Any, don't forget that. And affordable. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your history with Siskel and Ebert. I have a lot of it. Um, I mean, I certainly (laughs) would not be talking to you gentlemen, much less having written any book about film, uh, if not for them. Um, And the show was really my my gateway to to uh, movie love film criticism i mean i yes i watched movies as a kid of course i did you know like i was not raised you know uh in some sort of uh, strange community i i watched movies but i really wasn't like obsessed with movies as a really little kid so it was the show that really kind of was the gateway (laughs) sure i don't remember you know the first time i watched the show or how i discovered it anything like that i really don't i just by the time I was, you know, in middle school, I was just obsessed with it. And it's like, it was like, you know, amongst the handful of shows that I watched absolutely religiously. So my favorite factoid in the book was the business about how they got clips for the show. That this was, you know, before studios provided them as part of an EPK or whatever that like, so (laughs) Siskel and Ebert, as they were like watching movies for their jobs, they would select their own clips and had them like transferred over from the prints, which sounds insane. Um, What was the most surprising thing that you learned about them or about the show in the process of researching the book? Well, that is that is a good one. I mean, definitely. And it's it's something that it's funny. Like, I feel like if I, when I talk to people who don't do this sort of thing for a living, they're like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then when I you know, when I talk to I, I'm interviewed about the book by journalists, right, right. people who understand how film film publicity works, they their minds are boggled. And it's one of the, <laughs> the top things they want to discuss, because it really is right. It, it, it Maybe, you know, like if you do this for a living, the fact that that anyone even Siskel and Ebert were allowed to to access pick. yes <laughs> yeah and and what what people should keep in mind remember we're talking about really when they were doing this at at its height uh, is like the late 70s into the very early 1980s so we're not talking about DCPs here we're not talking about you know a uh, film like files we're talking about physical film prints 35 millimeter prints each can of which weighs about 20 something pounds and there's a right. whole bunch of them in every print. And it, and it's not like they're, um, 
you know, sending away for these things. They would, as you said, they would go to a press screening, they would bring along a, a PA or a producer, and the producer's job was to sit there in the dark with them with a pen and a pad and write down when they would say, I want this scene. And they had to have a watch <laughs> or a stopwatch going so they could yeah. take those specific clips. And then they would take yeah. the, that part, those parts of the print from the theater or the press room, wherever they were showing this thing, yeah. they would drag, haul these giant cans. If you're listening to this, you don't know what they look like. Google 35 millimeter film can. You will see the, these gargantuan <laughs> things. Now imagine it's Chicago, it's winter, it's 20 degrees below <laughs> zero and it's snowing and you're lugging three of these things in the snow. Right. Just imagine. That's awesome. Um, one of the coolest things in the book, and and, and something that I, I'm sure you sort of seized on uh, as, as something you want to do is the appendix, where you run down some of the, the, the lesser known movies that they sort of consistently championed, and, and you get to do a bit of advocacy of your own in sort of re-championing these movies. What would you say was sort of the, the, the best or the most memorable of the movies that you watched for the first time in researching this book? One of the things that really um, kind of surprised me was, you know, of course, uh, we all know um, the stories of Siskel and Ebert championing movies that have now become these sort of established right. classics, like, you know, Errol Morris told me he gave them his career. I mean, he flat out said that to me. What was surprising were how many movies they really loved that I had not only not seen, but never heard of. There was a lot mm -hmm. of them. And that was, and, and then I felt like a book about these film critics it needs some sort of film criticism in there as much as sure. I can get in there as a film criticism nerd myself. And that's how the appendix came about. I watched all of them. There are 25 movies that they loved, but then I picked 25 that when I watched them, I also loved them. Mm -hmm. uh, so here, I just opened it up in my copy here. And one of them that I opened up to is this movie called Love Letters by Amy Jones, which I did not know. And it's actually from 1984. Isn't that perfect? Hey, you would think I did hey. that on purpose, but I, I did. But uh, yeah, it's about Jamie Lee Curtis basically playing a woman who starts um, this affair with a married man. And it's it's connected to sort of uh, the life of her mother, which is documented in these letters that she finds. Just like a very it's produced by Roger Corman, which it makes it sound like, um, you know, something tawdry or exploitative, yeah. exploitative, but it's not at all. It's just a really. Um, just a really well acted and very interesting look at, you know, relationships, marriage, our relationships to our parents. Uh, and it got uh, uh, two thumbs up and uh, I had never heard of it. And it's absolutely worth checking out. It's a great little movie. So there you go. There's there's an example for you. Two thumbs up and then a third from Matt Singer. That's right. Um <laughs> well, again, congrats on the book, man. It's a great read. And, you know, as I said, anybody who is enough of a movie nerd to listen to this show is going to adore the book. So pick it up um, to the matter at hand. What year did you choose? Uh, you, you as you uh, you mentioned briefly there to talk about tonight and why? Well, yeah. So 1984 is my year. I'm going to give my thoughts and opinions, but mostly I'm going to like kind of let Gene and Roger talk. Cause I thought that would be kind of fun. Yay. So I've got a lot of their thoughts about these movies to kind of help spur some of the discussion. All right. And I will. Yeah. Oh yeah. And also shameless. Did I mention I'm a shameless self promoter <laughs> and that seemed like a great way to do that. No, no. But I, but, but I will say, and I'm not going to spoil it. One of these movies did not get two thumbs up. 
from oh, Gene boy. and Roger. So we have <laughs> so they wait. reviewed four. Three of them got two thumbs up. One did not. One of them, if they ever reviewed it, it's not available online. I can't find any evidence that they like actually did because like Ebert never even it, there's not even a print review available for Ebert. So it's possible they missed this one, which is surprising. Um, and we'll get to that. The creative ways that people are still finding to improve our show yeah. is just literally is really yeah. inspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I can't wait to hear how all of that plays out. But before we do, we're going to hear a little bit about what was going on in the world outside of the Siskel and Ebert balcony in 1984. Here is Mike with headlines. Aquanet, bro. It's just all the stories are about hairspray. That's it. It is a sign, perhaps, of how far we have come in this country that today's news of formal recognition between the governments of the United States and the Vatican did not create a furor. Once upon a time, it would have. Once upon a time, and not all that long ago, it did. January 10, the United States and the Vatican established diplomatic relations for the first time. Oh, that seems weird, yeah. right? That that took until 1984? That, yes. Yes, yeah, it There does. was a lot of anti-Catholic bias. Okay. Have you ever read, like, yeah. like going back, like, have you ever read, like, John Adams on the Catholics? <laughs> oh, like, boy. ooh, okay. we. All right. Like, it goes back. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, they were too anti-war for us. Right. I do remember that. In February, it was NASA mission STS-41B, a successful mission of the space shuttle Challenger which I think is always nice to mm -hmm. remind people mm -hmm. of, that there mm -hmm. were several successful Challenger missions yep. that included the first untethered spacewalk. This motherfucker nope. Bruce McCandless just floating nope. around in the abyss, bro. Absolutely Fuck that. Absolutely not. Like, you couldn't no, get a longer thank tether? You. No, and This thank is what you. I don't understand. Nope. Like, I know there's some things that are out away from the shuttle nope. you got to deal with, but, like, nope. with all the tech up there, you couldn't get a longer fucking rope? This is I why, don't... to this day, Gravity is one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen, yes. just because I yep. cannot. That's, that's my worst nightmare. Yep. Yep. What's the point yep. of untethered spacewalking? Just to prove you could do it? I check it I out. Guess. Guys, I look don't... what I'm doing. Hey. <laughs> Clearly, me. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but you know what? Neither does the internet. <laughs> so we, somebody needs to get a hold of Bruce McCandless yeah. and figure out what the fucking logic was behind that. Yeah. In March, Islamic Jihad kidnapped CIA station chief in Beirut, William Francis Buckley. There's got to be a movie about this, right? You would think. There has to be a movie hmm. about this. Hmm. No? Hmm. no? Not that I know of. All right. In June was Operation Blue Star when Indian President Indira Gandhi sent the armed forces to storm the T Golden Temple in Amritsar, one of the holiest sites in the Sikh religion. Okay. The They were after this guy called Jarnail Singh Binda, Bindranwale. Fuck you, I'm brave. <laughs> you I, tried. If I got you gave it, it a shot. But it was also a Sikh holiday, so there was a bunch of pilgrims there. Like, a, oh, a lot of people had come to the temple, so they... Mm -hmm. They killed a lot of people. It was a bad scene. Anyway, that's going to come up again later. Okay. July 1st, uh, the Motion Picture Association of America institutes PG-13 rating for the first time in response to the backlash to the violence in that summer's PG-rated Gremlins and Indiana Jones. Two movies I don't really think of as that violent. Oh, they're, no, they're violent as shit. Indiana Jones? Are you kidding me? That's the one where they pull the guy's fucking heart out. Like, they would, yeah. people were... Uh, that's yeah. pretty violent. People talk Fair about show Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom to my small child. No way. No. No, no chance. <laughs> Fair enough. 13 seconds being generous for that yeah 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 matt singer <laughs> how old were you in the summer of 84 when these movies hit so i was three years old so i'm i'm, I'm not okay. seeing most of these movies i'm i'm seeing a no. few years later on, on cable yeah like hbo yeah. vhs yeah, yeah. I, 
I was uh, eight years old, so I was like, like I we went to the theater to see Gremlins, and like my parents were freaked out by the microwave <laughs> business. Were. So I remember this very vividly that there was going to be a new rating. Yes, yes, this was a big fucking deal. When so it happened. you're the reason we got a PG-13 yes. rating. Look at you influencing movie history. That's me. Also in July, cosmonaut Svetlana Savitskaya became the first woman to perform a spacewalk, tethered, I assume, because it's not noted otherwise. Uh, so first woman to do a spacewalk. And Liechtenstein became the last European country to give women the right to vote. <laughs> 1984. Good Lord. Liechtenstein is shady as fuck. No dude. I don't know if you know about them, but they're shady. Yeah. I know we're not supposed to, like, you know, run off potential uh, listeners, but <laughs> Liechtenstein is shady. Yeah. They got a weird history. The Justice Department said today that it is investigating how FBI surveillance tapes of automaker John DeLorean were obtained by magazine publisher Larry Flint and then passed on to CBS News. And DeLorean's lawyer argued that broadcast of some of the tapes by CBS News now should be cause for dismissal of the cocaine dealing case against his client. In August, John DeLorean was acquitted of eight charges of possessing and distributing cocaine. Yes, the, the only DeLorean you've ever heard of, the guy that designed the car. Have you ever heard this story? Oh, yeah. This is the most 1984-ass <laughs> shit I've ever heard in my life, the John DeLorean cocaine story. We're not going to tell it here, but if you don't know it, man, yeah. enjoy that. And then, you know, it made its way into a rather significant movie of 1985, ladies and gentlemen. What, what movie is oh, that? Oh, Back to the Future, baby. The DeLorean. Dorian uh, time machine. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought you meant the cocaine story. No, I'm sorry. No, I was no, no. like, wait, at the same it's time? It's a metaphor. The, the, back the, 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 the DeLorean is actually a metaphor for cocaine. It allows yes. you to travel yes. through time. Yes. That's, that's what yes, that means. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Love it. Now I finally like that movie. In October, U.S. astronaut Catherine D. Sullivan became the first American woman to do a spacewalk, mm -hmm. which was not at all inspired by the shifty commies who did it back Tethered? in July. Untethered? What are we, what is the, <laughs> Unless it specifically says, I'm going to assume tethered. I'm going to assume Bruce McCandless is the only person crazy enough to go untethered. Get the F out. Come on. That's right. That's right. Also in October, Provisional Irish Army tried to assassinate the Provisional Irish Republican Army, excuse me, tried to assassinate Margaret Thatcher in the Brighton Hotel bombing. Shit. They killed five, but Maggie wasn't one of them. All right. Yeah. They were wiling out. Remember that thing about the Indian Army storming the Sikh temple? Mm -hmm. in also in October, Indira Gandhi was killed by two Sikh security guards. Oh, her, uh, her people tried to pull all the Sikhs off of her security detail after that whole adventure, but she had them reinstated because she was worried firing them would make her look more anti-Sikh. Okay. So maybe Indira Gandhi was murdered by wokeness? <laughs> oh, I'm God. Say that on here. God. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Over the next four days, uh, 8,000 Sikhs were killed in Jesus. retaliation. So okay. I guess her life was worth 8,000. Oh, right. The day after one of the most impressive presidential victories in American history, President Reagan and George Bush won 59% of the vote, beating the Mondale-Ferraro ticket by 18 points. In November, U.S. President Ronald Reagan won his re-election over Walter Mondale by taking 49 of the 50 states, an absolute ass a whooping bro. I, I cannot believe I'm going to quote Dennis Miller two weeks in a row, but I still remember his joke about this was uh, Mondale got 13 electoral votes. Folks, that's 13 more than I got, and I didn't even run. That's a <laughs> pretty pretty solid Miller Quality line. Joke. Yeah, pretty solid. New York City police are calling this the most serious subway crime this year. Four men, 18 and 19 years old, shot by a gunman who is still at large. A gunman who police say told the conductor of the southbound number two train that the four victims were trying to mug him 
and that's why he shot them. And on December 22nd, Barry Allen, Troy Canty, James Ramsour, and Daryl Cabey were all shot by Bernard Getz on the subway. Fuck that guy. Yep. Uh, listen to our Fun City Cinema episode about Death Wish and its real life um, uh, copycats. Or also, there's a really good Audible podcast that just came out specifically about this case called Fiasco Vigilante. And I will put that in the uh, extra credit reading. Some new stuff came out in 84. Van Halen released a record... Mm-hmm. Not very creatively titled 1984. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Apple released the first Macintosh computer. The first TED conference found a new way to be insufferable. <laughs> uh, Cirque du Soleil was created in Canada. Speaking of insufferable. <laughs> the first Virgin Atlantic flight was mm-hmm. in 84. The first episodes of Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm-hmm. Chrysler introduced the minivan. And the CIA started selling crack. <laughs> so good times. Yeah. Yes, indeed. They have since uh, investigated themselves and decided that they didn't actually sell crack. I'm glad like we cleared that up. Shady. Glad we cleared it up. Uh, there were some tough deaths in 84. Ray Kroc went to the big McDonald's in the sky. Andy Kaufman died. Mm-hmm. Uh, big Mama Thornton. Jackie Wilson. Janet Gaynor. Truman Capote. Richard Burton. Ansel Adams. Count Basie. Damn. Ethel Merman. Mm-hmm. Peter Lawford. A lot of people in 84. Mm-hmm. Francois Truffaut uh. and Sam Peckinpah. Uh. The ones that were really mm. Ernest Tubb. And finally, Marvin Gaye had his life cut short by his pops prematurely. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you know he married Barry Gordy's sister? And then when he found out she couldn't have a kid, he went and impregnated her 15-year-old niece? Boy. Uh, and that man is named Marvin Gaye third. I didn't 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 know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, I didn't not the best part of his. recently either. Not, not the well, best okay, part of his story, yeah. clearly. Okay. Yeah, that part gets buried. Yep. Uh, in sports, uh, we'll do this quickly. The Detroit Tigers beat the San Diego Padres in five to win the 84 World Series. Fuscre and Essendon played a goalless first half for only the second time since 1899. They were on a waterlogged Western Oval, so you can, as you can imagine, that didn't help. Pure gibberish. Very. Pure fucking gibberish. <laughs> Donald Sterling moved the San Diego Clippers to L.A. in 84. You remember that fucking <laughs> guy? He sucked. He sucked, that guy. <laughs> He told his wife, like, I don't care if you have sex with black dudes, just don't put them on Instagram. I remember. Where's the winning time about that guy and his team? (laughs) That's a a show that would not get canceled. I'm watching. I am watching. The Boston Celtics beat the LA Lakers to win the championship, but little uh, did people realize the real NBA news in 84 was in the draft. Hakeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, John Stockton, and a guy named Mike were all drafted that year. Someone should make a movie about that and play all of the hit songs from 1984. That is is my (laughs) suggestion. Fuzzy Zoller won the U.S. Open. I don't actually care very much. I just want an excuse to say Fuzzy Zoller. Wayne Gretzky was showing these clowns how to play hockey. He Mm -hmm. won the Stanley Cup and the Hart Trophy and the motherfucking Art Art Ross Trophy. I'm so excited I I can't even say it. Art Ross Trophy in 84. There were some Olympics. They were a big success. But the real sports news in 84 is the founding of the U.S. Pickleball Association. You guys got pickleball paddles yet? Come on, you've had like 40 years. Get on it. My dad loves pickleball. Exactly. And when you get another 20 years older and your knees don't work as well, you're going to love it too. That's headlines. Thank you, Mike. Matt Singer, are you ready to do a top five? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we talked before the show, and we decided uh, we're going to do a a traditional ranked list, a five-to-one situation. 
Uh, these are all really killer, and uh, uh, and I think we're going to have a good time with this one. So, Matt Singer, what is the number five movie on your top five list of 1984? One of the weird things we did during the pandemic was we got in this weird body swap thing where we watched every body swap movie. Did you watch 18 again? We did. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. That's not one of, our, one of my yeah, favorites. Yeah, yeah. My, my personal favorite of all the ones we watched is... This movie, which is all of me. Roger Cobb was a rising young lawyer whose first big case. Guess what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to come back from the dead. Was a basket case. What am I missing here? You see, thanks to His Holiness Bracalaza, my soul is going to leave my body forever and become one with the universe. At which time my soul will enter her body. Ah, good plan is a Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin comedy. Maybe not quite a full-blown body swap because it's not two people swapping bodies. It's more... It's more like a body squish, yeah, it's maybe? Like a body smush. A... Basically, yeah, a body smush. Yeah, yeah. Like most of the movie is Lily Tomlin being put into Steve Martin's body and they're sort of... Sh- and they haven't even really shared. They're, they're, I mean, they haven't really swapped. They are sharing. They're sort of fighting for control which makes it this beautiful showcase for Steve Martin to do uh, physical comedy. It's just, it's this An incredible physical comedy. Yes. Like, like literally like they each take like half of the body. So you've got all this great stuff of him, like walking down a street, like, like his, his halves are being pulled apart. Yes. It's, it's so much fun to watch him in this movie. This one, I weirdly, I went back to rewatch this for the episode because I was like, I've seen all of me. That's Steve Martin. Carl Reiner directed that. Of course mm-hmm. I've seen it. Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. And I don't know, about 20 minutes in, I was like, I've definitely never seen this at least <laughs> all the way through. Like, I think it was one of those. And this is a thing that may, that younger listeners can maybe have trouble wrapping their heads around. This was just, this was an HBO movie. This was on HBO all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure like you would see chunks of movies uh, but maybe never sit down to watch the whole thing just because it was on HBO. So I certainly had seen pieces of this, but I had never watched it from credit to credit until I watched it for the show. And God damn it. This is a funny movie. It's really funny. This is, it's a, it's a delight. I was just looking at some scenes before we started recording and the scene in the bathroom where they're, they're yes. fighting for control yes. of his body to use the restroom. I mean, it is a tour. It is a tour de force. It is, you know, Steve Martin, physical comedy You have Lily Tomlin. He can sort of see her in reflections. He can see her in, in reflections. Right. right. He can she see her is, in mirrors, she, which is a great the idea. Premise yeah. is like she's a dying woman and she's very wealthy and she's used her money to like pay someone who's figured out how to take a person's spirit out of their body and put it into another person. And through a mishap, it wind, you know, her spirit winds up inside Steve Martin's body and then now they're fighting for control of his body and in one scene he has to use the restroom and she has but he can't do it because (laughs) he needs her help to do it and it's it's just an incredible you know and then of course someone (laughs) walks into the bathroom while he's trying to do it and overhears their conversation uh it's just it's fantastic it's it's really really great um yeah i mean one of the things that i loved about these body swap movies watching them all like I said, with my wife in the pandemic was, um, you know, and this gets back to Roger Ebert, you know, Roger Ebert loved to call movies like, you know, empathy machines. They allow us to 
you know, see the world from another person's perspective to like walk a mile or 90 minutes in someone else's shoes and body swap movies after watching so many of them in like a one month period, I realized they're almost like literally that concept <laughs> as a right. movie. They take that subtext right. of all movies and they make it text. They allow the characters in the movie to experience that empathy machine because most of these movies are about people. They, you know, inevitably it's about people who don't get along, who don't see the world for, you know, it's the father and son or the grandfather and grandson who don't get along, don't see the world the same way, or they have these issues. And then by swapping positions, they discover, they, they grow to understand one another. They appreciate their own lives more. They see their own, their, the, the, the other person's point of view. They begin to understand what they're going through. So it really, you know, it is, if you subscribe to that Ebert philosophy, it's one of the places where you can actually see that philosophy expressed very like pointedly in movies. So that's another thing, um, again, shamelessly plugging the book, like that's another fun way that this movie and all body swap movies kind of interact with the, uh, specifically the Ebert half of things. Do you guys, do you guys want to guess if this way, I, I did spoil that, you know, that all but one of the movies, at least that they reviewed, got the two thumbs up. Maybe I shouldn't have even given that away. Do, would you care to guess whether this was the movie they disagreed on or if this got the thumbs, two thumbs up? If memory serves, they both liked this one. I, I seemed, I, I, I have an inclination as to the disagreement one and I don't think it's this. Okay. Michael, you want to weigh in here? I, 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 is this really not the one that they, that they skipped? They did review this movie. Yes. This, okay. 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 Yes. Well then, yeah, this has got to be two thumbs it up. It is two thumbs up. It is indeed. Yay! This got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> um, Gene said the movie is uh, very funny for Steve Martin. He loved his performance, but he thought the performance was the highlight of a so-so script. Roger Roger liked Steve Martin and he liked the whole movie and that was notable for him because as he put it this is the first Steve Martin movie right. I have liked which yes. um, which is true they it's uh, Roger Ebert was not a fan of especially the early wacky Steve Martin comedies I mean one of the fun things another fun thing about doing the research for the book was you would watch um hundreds of episodes and you would see them reviewing acknowledged masterpieces, what we consider acknowledged masterpieces. And sometimes they got it right off the bat. Sometimes they said, Oh, do the right thing. This is a masterpiece. It is an essential work of American cinema, you know, uh, and other times they just wouldn't get it. And sometimes they wouldn't get people for a long time. And like Roger Ebert, not a fan of Steve Martin or um, uh, Gene and Roger, both not fans of Tom Hanks in the beginning in the beginning, yeah, yeah they gave Splash true. two thumbs down. They gave all his early movies, yeah. you know, two thumbs down. He was the bosom buddies guy. They were not buying in on right. Tom Hanks. It took a while, so yeah. Uh, yeah. But but they did like this one. Shame on him for not understanding the poetry of "Boy, I'd love you if you was the color of a baboon." <laughs> <laughs> Matt Singer, what is the number four movie on your top five of nineteen eighty four? Okay, so my number four movie, and this is the movie that. Uh, they did not review at least that I could, I could not find any examples of it. I thought, I thought so. It's a, uh, it's a nightmare on Elm street. The original nightmare on Elm street. The kids of Elm street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. 
nightmare on Elm Street. No! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails, no one will survive. Ah! Help me, please! Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, rated R. Now, I'm personally not uh, like a huge Freddy Krueger fan. If you put me in front of one of the sequels and you didn't tell, you know, and you cut the opening credits off, I probably couldn't tell you which one it is just based on the, you know, the the content or the kills or who's in it. Like, I don't know this franchise all that well. There might be one or two I've never even seen. I've never really um, been that interested in the sequels where Freddy kind of becomes like, not really a hero. He's a wisecracker, yeah. yeah. It's more like the, the Freddy Krueger show and like, how can he kill people in inventive ways and imaginative effects and gore and like, like on a technical level, they can be a lot of fun, but I just like the original movie because I, I genuinely find it like scary and disturbing. And I think that it's, you know, movies famously, they are dreams. They speak in the language of dreams. And to me, like, Nightmare on Elm Street is the ultimate movie that's the, the speaks the language of bad dreams. Um, I, you know, I don't have, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that I have an abnormal amount of bad dreams, but I have a lot of weird dreams, dreams that make no sense. They're just strange. And when I watch a Nightmare on Elm Street, it, it feels like something that's like, I feel like I'm looking at someone who experiences those kind of dreams that are so bizarre and unnatural and um, and unnerving. And it's not just like the, you know, the fact that people are are dying or anything like that. It's the idea that you're seeing things that sort of defy description in this eerie, beautiful, terrifying way. You know, like the famous, um, I guess, spoiler alert, the famous scene where Johnny <laughs> gets like eaten by his bed and it and like he like the, the the result is this geyser of blood that somehow like defies gravity and it's spilling onto the ceiling and it's and then this and then it seems to be almost like tilting uh, and like dripping diagonally I, like I don't know how they did it I don't want to know how they did it it's better not to know how they did it I just like to look at it and be like this is so weird and 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 scuzzy and strange and terrifying. And so that's like, that's how I like my Freddy. You know, I like my Freddy who's not so funny, who's really disturbing. And, you know, you like, you look, I was just looking at like the opening credits of the movie and, you know, it really has this grungy, like, you know, vibe to it. It's not Mm -hmm. slick. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, you know, you watch the opening when he's putting together this glove and it's like window boxed inside the frame. You're going like, what have I stumbled into? What, what weird, like unholy thing from the back of a video store did I just, you know, grab off a shelf? You know, it looks like it should have been in like a paper bag or something. You know, it just has that <laughs> vibe to it. Just the like the clean white nightgown <clears throat> in the industrial space. Like just that in the beginning by itself is so fucking weird that like you don't really need sort of special effects. Right. and Because that's the thing about your dreams is like mine at least are not full of CGI. I mean, the older I get to, the other thing that I really like is, you know, most of the adults in the movie in one way or another are damaged, broken, horrible. And the the kids are really kind of like suffering because of all of their bad decisions and the things that they have done or not done or kept quiet about. 
and I don't know when I, the more, the older I get and having kids, I'm just something about that really speaks to me in some way. I don't know. I don't know what that's, what that's about, but. Well, speaking of parents and kids, uh, this is actually a first in almost a full season that we have a top five, um, where, uh, two of the films are directed by a father and his son. So Matt true. Singer, what is the number three movie on your top five of 84? That is true. Uh, yes, Wes Craven Jr.'s classic film. <laughs> uh, no, we had Carl Reiner's uh, All of Me, and now we have Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap. Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit. Merrill Schindler of Los Angeles Magazine says This Is Spinal Tap is the funniest rock movie ever made. That's uh, no, you can't print that. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, don't find that sexist? Playboy calls it a refreshing, hilarious rockumentary that sends up what the Beatles started with a hard day's night. So that's nitpicking, isn't it? This is Spinal Tap, the band, the movie, the motion picture. Rated R. Starts Friday, March 9th at Man's Plaza in Westwood. Which uh, might... No, I guess it can't. I was going to say it's the movie I've seen the most here, but no, that's that's just not true. <laughs> Number one on this list is going to be the yeah. movie I've seen probably in, most in my entire life. But I've definitely watched this movie... Um, a million times, and uh, I've also watched the commentary track about a million times. Right, You've never. I don't know how easy it is now to get the commentary where they're in character. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. In, it's an incredible comedy track in and of itself. It's almost like a, a, a movie unto itself. Like, how old were you when you first saw this? How much? How many of sort of the references did you get then? And is this another one that for you has sort of been a grower as you've grown older? This one I probably saw in high school, I would guess, actually. Okay. It had been a little, it had been later. And then in college became one of those movies where, you know, you have, you don't have really cable. So you just, and you have like a TV and a VCR in your room and you have eight tapes and this yep. is one of the tapes. <laughs> and so, you know, okay, well, I watched uh, that, you know, I watched the Mitchell episode of Mystery Science Theater last <laughs> night and, yeah. you know, and I watched, uh clerks the night before so what am i going to watch tonight okay let's put on spinal tap again for the 100th time um i think people kind of know what what the what the gist is here do you do you want to guess here about the the vote this is another one that they reviewed i'm getting two thumbs up jason saying two thumbs up michael i think yeah i think i've decided which one they which one the split was and this is not it okay yes you are correct this is another two thumbs up and this one they were both very um enthusiastic about rogers yay rogers says this is a good movie this is not only one of the funniest movies i've seen in a long time it's also one of the smartest and the most clever and he notes uh, it really does feel like a real documentary it feels like a documentary, and it works like a great comedy. It also succeeds in telling us the story of this very badly confused rock band. And then Gene says, mm-hmm. it works because they have a terrific comic premise, because this movie has something to say about the rock business, which is, there's a lot of bad bands out there. And Gene also, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. And then Gene also says, and I thought this was an this is an interesting uh, comment that we can talk about in in the context of Siskel and Ebert. It says, this film is really doing something quite special. It's saying you can learn just as much by studying something lousy as studying somebody great. We can learn just as much about the rock business, uh, if you want to, uh, from this movie with all of its funny stuff, as we do by studying the success of the Beatles in the complete Beatles. Uh, And Roger says, you have to be smart to watch and appreciate this movie. 
And um, yeah. that's I thought that I was agree. an interesting comment by Gene. Gene, lo- you know, Gene loved documentaries, so I'm not surprised that that is something he brought up in his review. He's always comparing fictional movies to, you know, nonfiction and like the great movies, the great fictional movies to him in his mind often had qualities of nonfiction in them. So it's sort of fun that he's like, well, yes, yeah, so Spinal Tap is funny, but we're learning things about the rock right. business. And again, he's not wrong. It's, you know, but that's right. like only Siskel would would really put it in those right. terms. That was a very sort of Siskel way of, of doing it. And I do also like Roger's comment about that this movie feels like a real documentary. And I think that that is something that can be overlooked by some people just because like I, I now I'm blanking on what movie I saw recently. I could figure it out by going like if I looked at my letterbox, but I saw some movie recently that was supposed to be a fake documentary and it did it. Theater camp. Was it possibly theater camp? it, It was theater camp, which starts off very authentic to the fake documentary vibe in, and is great. And I was so into it. And by the end of the movie, it's a charming movie. It's funny. But it also is not, but they completely forget about the fake documentary part. Now, that frustrated me. And and you watch Spinal Tap and it, they paid, they did such a good job of mimicking a documentary that you believe that these guys could be real. And that's why they could do a commentary track afterwards. That's why they could tour as Spinal right. Tap, which I once <laughs> saw Spinal Tap play Carnegie Hall, which was an incredible wow. night. Yes, where where I might add the opening act for Spinal Tap was the Folksmen, their band yep. from uh, from a Mighty Wind. Mighty Wind, oh, and wow. people did not realize that it was them, and they booed them. <laughs> they did not get a warm reception. They did not. This was, That's I believe, awesome. if I'm not mistaken, this was before a Mighty Wind came out. Right. So people oh wow! Didn't get the bit. Maybe some people in the yeah. front did, but the the air in the room as these guys kept droning <laughs> on and talking about the 60s and playing their folk music, people didn't wow. get it. It was amazing. It, it took a while for people to go, wait a minute. Um, yes. So, um, yeah. Love Spinal Tap. Definitely uh, seek out the uh, the commentary track if you can find it. Okay, great. All right. Matt, I, I Okay. The number two movie on your list, I'm calling it now. I think I, I I I think I've seen the clip. I think this is the one that they split on. What is the number two on your list? The number two on my list. You are correct. This was the split vote. But okay, but but who oh, voted I'm, thumbs up and who voted thumbs down for the Terminator? James Cameron's The Terminator. They come from another time. A machine wrapped in flesh. A soldier from a distant war, both after a woman who holds the key to the future. One wants to kill her, the other must protect her. I'm here to help you. You've been targeted for termination. The Terminator. Your future is in his hands. The Terminator. Rated R. The number one movie in the USA is now playing everywhere. That's the number two film. And yes, this is the one split vote. So who split which way? Gene, that old fuddy-duddy, uh, gave it the old thumbs down. And, okay. and Roger Ebert <laughs> recognized a, 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 a flourishing young talent and gave it the thumbs up. That is my memory. I, I'm not as certain about that as I was that this was the one that they split on. Okay. Michael, did you... 
I was going to say it was the next one, oh. so I'm just going to go with Bailey. I think I'm following Bailey's okay. lead. Okay, all right. Yes, <laughs> he is correct. This was a Roger thumbs up and a Gene thumbs down. They reviewed it on the show after it had already come out, so they didn't even review it like right. we could release. And they sort of, as they're introducing it, they're talking about how this is like the big movie in theaters the last few weeks. Um, Roger describes it as a cross between Dirty Harry and the Road Warrior meets the killer from Halloween. <laughs> he says it's... N- <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, he compares it to... Uh, he, he calls it nonstop action and violence, except for the scenes involving Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor calls those scenes surprisingly romantic and effective. He says, this is a surprising movie. It's violent. It's bloody. It's sadistic, but it's also well acted and directed. It is rated R. Don't go unless you like strong action pictures, but I must say I did like it. I mean, he sounds almost embarrassed to admit that he likes it. You know, he's really qualified. (laughs) This is not a rave. This is a like begrudging admission of guilt in his mind. Well, this is the thing that I think is so hard to communicate if you are, you know, to a younger listener who, you know, whose memories of Terminator sort of begin with Terminator 2, Mm -hmm. which was eight years after this. Mm -hmm. The original Terminator was not a big studio blockbuster thing. This was a small movie. This was uh, James Cameron was like a guy out of the Roger Corman school. Right. This movie is is low budget. It's sort of grimy. It's sort of scuzzy. It was kind of disreputable. It was not yet this this, you know, sort of gigantic piece of IP that the Terminator, for better or worse, mostly after T2 for worse, became. So it is sort of, uh, you know, I went back and I just put it on today. I hadn't watched it in a while. It is sort of uh, jarring to go back and rewatch it and see how of that sort of like early 80s, almost, you know, new world picture uh, ilk that it is. Yeah. I mean, it really, I mean, as you're describing it, it's making me think, you know, it has a lot in common in that sense with like A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is not. Oh, totally. uh, It's not, you know, that doesn't, that's not a movie that's looking to be a franchise either. You know, it's looking to tell this scuzzy you know it's like we're going to use exploitation fair to tell this story to explore these themes you know we got a great director Make a little money we got a, yes and we and, and we have a great up-and-coming director who has a great visual sense and a lot of ideas and we're going to give him a little budget and he's going to know what to do with it you know what i mean yeah, yeah. you said nightmare on elm street comes in a paper bag i think this movie can, should come in like one of those black bodega bags <laughs> Okay. Right. (laughs) Same thing. Slightly more. uh, Slightly more technologically advanced. That's right. So, so Gene. So Gene gave it thumbs down. He says, "I was rooting for it. Everyone's talking about it, but I was not impressed." He said the action seemed to be seemed to be pretty much routine. (laughs) Called the future scenes erector set toy making. I think he maybe meant filmmaking but a rector set toy filmmaking he does agree that he likes the scenes involving kyle and sarah and he says if it had really been about that i would have enjoyed it a lot more roger then you know like when they're going back and forth added that it's violent but yes it is poignant it is bittersweet along with the nonstop action and then gene says as an action picture i thought it was not particularly well made <laughs> I don't know about that one. This I'm, is, not, I'm not so sure. See, like, I have, I, I will put on these episodes just as background when I'm working and shit yeah, like that. And like, that. yes. Every two or three episodes, there's one where Gene is completely out of the fucking 
ballpark on it. I'm like, what are you talking about, Gene Siskel? What do you mean the routine action in Terminator? Gene did not, you know, this is like, uh, I would say almost like a blind spot for him in the sense that it is a movie about dark dystopian futures, which I think if he were here, he would say was his least favorite kind of movie. Sure. And when you watch sure. hundreds of the episodes, what you see over and over is that he he is very hard pressed to give any movie about a dark and bleak future a thumbs up. He hates like on basic principles. It's like almost it almost like offends his sensibility, his optimism about the future, his belief, this like deep seated belief that the world is going to be OK which, I mean, I hope you're right, Gene. Like, I, I, I really do. <laughs> but he, you know, like, over and over, they would review these movies. And Roger was, loved science fiction, didn't have any sure. bias against dystopian science fiction, any kind of sci-fi he liked. Um, you know, he, was, he grew up reading sci-fi magazines. He had his own sci-fi fanzine as a kid. Like, this is one of the ways they were such total opposites. Interesting interesting pattern all right here we are uh at at the end of the list the number one movie of 1984 matt singer what is it gonna be the reason that i couldn't possibly say that spinal tap is the movie i've seen the most on this list is because the number one movie is probably the movie i've seen the most in my entire life of any year much less 1984 and uh, it's it's ghostbusters Get ready for the Ghostbusters. Hey, ever see a ghost? Ghosts despise them. It's right here, Ray. <laughs> what happened? Are you okay? He slimed me. Women adore them. I find her interesting because she sleeps above her covers. Four feet above her covers. The world needs them. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We might have to put a little overtime in on this one. We came, we saw, we kicked it. Ghostbusters, the supernatural comedy. Rated PG. Now playing this was really my favorite movie as a kid, this and space. Sure. Those were the two, you know, before I discovered Siskel <laughs> and Ebert, when I was saying right. I was watching like a handful of movies, you know, before they introduced me to uh, the wider world of cinema, you know, this was really one of the couple of movies that I loved and would watch over and over again. And in terms of what Gene and Roger said, we already established it. It's a two thumbs up because uh, we already got to their split vote. Roger calls it, a funny combination of two kinds of movies that don't always work very well together. On the one hand, this is a big budget special effects picture. A picture. I love when they call them a picture. I a do too. With a lot I of sensational too. earth-shaking adventures in it. And on the other hand, it's a very funny movie to listen to because of the sly and understated dialogue. He says, I love listening to this movie. Roger says, usually when a movie has a lot of special effects, there's a danger that the characters will look like they're simply standing around posing in front of the special effects, not in Ghostbusters. This is one of the slyest, wittiest movies I've seen in a long time. Gene says, I think it's very funny, too. He preferred the comedy to the special effects. He loved Bill Murray in the movie. It's a Bill Murray movie, and I love that even more than the special effects. So... Hard to hard to argue with that. But yeah, it's funny, like looking at the movies that I picked and, and, and um, you know, it's certainly a much bigger movie in terms of the scale and the budget to uh, the Terminator and a Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, it's like in 1984, we got these movies and now we get 
these movies again. It's like, it's <laughs> yeah. like, can't we find, you know, like, again, wouldn't you love again. to see a little more of the ingenuity and the ideas and the originality and the inventiveness and the spirit of these movies instead of just getting more versions of the same movies? And sure, they can still be fun. I mean, obviously, Terminator 2 is a fabulous movie. And uh, I'm such a lunatic and such a, 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 you know, a nerd about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I could defend every single one of those sequels on some grounds. Uh-huh. But I would also love to see like a, a more a, a modern movie that takes the ideas in the Terminator, but isn't called Terminator 10 or whatever it is or Ghostbusters, uh, you know, seven or whatever. Like, you know, let's that, that, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Here, here. Amen. Uh, all right, Matt, thank you so much for that all killer, no filler top five. Uh, all right, let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money in 1984. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. The record company's only Starting off strong, they got a lot this night. Best Picture, Best Director to Milos Forman, Best Actor to F. Murray Abraham, and Best Adapted Screenplay to Peter Schaefer for Amadeus. Has anybody Good seen picture. that movie since then? I've yes, I've I I mean not recently, but I've I I saw it some when it came out on DVD and the 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 director's cut came out. I saw it. Amadeus is good, and and the thing that's great about Amadeus is it is much more uh, playful uh, than the sort of you know stuffy period piece that that you always assumed it was, and from from that Oscar hall and that sort of thing. Matt, do you like Amadeus? Oh, I, I love Amadeus. I mean, I that could be like, you know, number six on this list. I mean, I, sure. you know, it's uh, I really went with mostly sentimental favorites. And that's a movie that I, I probably saw when I was younger, but didn't really remember. And then watched it for the first time as an adult, really just a year or two ago. And I thought it was mm. amazing. And I, I, you know, seeing genius from the perspective of a fraud I don't know why, yeah. but it's it's a it's a perspective I can relate to for some strange reason. So, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's really same, I, weirdly. That's what I yeah. really spark to in that film. Yeah, best actress to Sally Field, best original screenplay to Robert Benton for Places in the Heart. Here's the weird thing: as we as I was putting together the Oscar list, Amadeus is one of the few movies that won Oscars this year that I have seen. Like these were all yeah. like very grown up movies when I was that age yes. that never seemed all that important to go back to. So. Uh, so yes, I, I, I've never seen places in the heart. Yeah. Same best supporting actor to fuck you, Jason young S you could have just skipped this one. No, Hang S snore. Yeah. Huh? There we go. Hang S snore. Yes. Hang, Hang S snore. That's yeah. an, he just let Americans say it that way for the killing yeah. fields, which I've still never seen. I have never seen it, but reviewed on the same episode of Siskel and Ebert or at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert as the Terminator. So there you go. Two thumbs I'll bet up. they gave it two thumbs up. They gave yeah, it two thumbs yeah, up. Had a oh, feeling. Yeah. Had a feeling. Best supporting actress to Peggy Ashcroft for a passage to India. That I have not seen. Also, same, not seen. <laughs> Here's one you've seen. Best original song score to Prince for Purple Rain. Hell this yeah. This used to be an Oscar they gave and Prince won it. And I love that for him. And Purple Rain is... Uh, there's a lot of good music in Purple Rain and some some hashtag problematic gender mm. dynamics in that one as well. Just a smidge. But, Just uh, a smidge. Yes, another two thumbs up movie from from Gene and Roger. It was on their Best yep. of '84 episode. They were big. They were nice. big Purple Rain fans. Best original song to "I Just Called to Say I Love You" by the woman in or from the woman in red. 
Now here's the thing. Look, I love Steve. I love Stevie. I love Stevie. But the idea of this getting the best original song Oscar in the year that Ghostbusters and Purple Rain came out yeah. is uh, suspect. It's fucking suspect. Yeah, it's a, that was that was a miss. Let's call it what it is. If that song was a cup of coffee, it's three quarters milk. <laughs> here's the question: Have you ever seen the woman in red? No. I don't think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that, like, that song became so ubiquitous, and yet I'm not sure that it actually impacted people seeing that movie when it came out. Golden Globe for Best Picture Comedy Musical and Best Actress Comedy Musical to Kathleen Turner for Romancing the Stone. Oh, boy, movie. I like Romancing the Stone. Boy, I rewatched that just a couple, three months ago, and it's it still works, still plays. Yeah, it's really, I rewatched it a li- uh, maybe last year, I think. That was another one that I've, re- I've revisited, and yeah, it really holds up. I have not rewatched yeah. the other one, the sequel, so I don't know about that it's one. But the first not one as works. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Golden Globe for Best Actor Comedy Musical, the Dudley Moore for Mickey and Maude. Which Roger loved. I remember he. There's a four star print review of Mickey and Maud. He was he was crazy about this movie, uh, mm. and on the basis of that four star review, I did watch that one a few years ago. And it is. It's funny. It's a good, uh, good Blake Edwards, uh, uh polyamory comedy. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bafta for best director to Wim Wenders for Paris, Texas. A shameful blind spot for me. I still have never seen Paris, Texas and keep meaning to because it screens fairly often. Matt, have you seen Paris, Texas? Oh, yeah. It's been a while. That's one that I would love to, you know, I haven't seen it probably since college, post-college, that era, which is now sadly decades ago. So I need to, and it's been been so long that I I would like to rewatch it, but. I mean, it, it is an awesome movie. BAFTA for Best Actress to Maggie Smith, Best Supporting Actor to Denholm Elliott, and Best Supporting Actress to Liz Smith for A Private Function. Which I have not seen and I've always met. Three BAFTAs for a movie about going to the mm-hmm. bathroom. Amazing. <laughs> BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay to Woody Allen for Broadway, Danny Rose. Good we've, movie. We've talked about Funny liking movie. that movie before on this show. I don't remember yeah. the context, but yeah, yeah, good movie. Good movie. Uh BAFTA for Best Original Score to Ennio Morricone for Once Upon a Time in America. That shit's like nine hours long, bro. I'm never watching it. I'm sorry. It's a great movie. It's a great fucking movie. I believe you. It would take me less time to read like three good articles about it. No? It's really good. And the the Morricone score is quite excellent. Just put some respect on Sergio. That was his last movie, Mike. He spent so many years making that movie. It's a good movie. All right, fair enough. That's the best reason I've heard to watch it. BAFTA for Best Original Song to Ghostbusters. Somebody got it right. Somebody got it right. Uh, Let's look at the box office. Box office. Yep, we've heard of some of these movies. Number 10 was Splash. I like that. I like Splash. I like Splash. I rewatched it for a book I didn't write. Matt, do you like Splash? Ah, yeah. That's that's another one I haven't revisited in a long time. But uh, I think, as we mentioned, two two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert. They did not like Splash. Didn't care for it. They were not on board with Tom Hanks. Not at first. Number nine, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. That's one of the good ones, right? Good one. It's a good one. Not bad. Not the best. Not the worst. Number eight, Romancing the Stone, previously mentioned. Number seven, Footloose. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was. It's it sucks though. I, I'm not a Footloose fan. <laughs> that is one that I think, uh, outside of that specific cultural moment, does not hold much water. That's just just my two cents. 
See, I definitely didn't see it when it, you know, in in 1984, but I remember it being such a big deal in 84 that I did actually sit down and try to watch it later and was like, oh, get the fuck out of here with this movie. I couldn't finish. (laughs) Number six, Police Academy. I finished Police Academy several times in my life. I'm sure you did. Now we're talking about some good movies, finally. (laughs) There we go. There we go. You had the guy. He made the noises. Uh, Number five, Karate Kid. Watch that once or twice. I rewatched The Karate Kid like three weeks ago with my children, and they loved it. They loved The Karate Kid. The Karate Kid is a good-ass movie. The original it Karate is. Kid is a really, yes. really... I mean, it's a shameless, you know, sports formula movie, but it works. It works so well. And then... Should have stopped cold. Should right, have stopped the after the one. Whatever. And But you know what? Uh, you know, you go watch the first, like the first season of Cobra Kai, which like takes the original movie and mess, like un- inverts it. Super clever. Yeah. I mean, again, the later season, they should have stopped with one season. The later season is what it is. But uh, no, I, that I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if my kids are. I was thinking about showing them Karate Kid soon. I think they're probably almost ready for that one. I bet they would like. Minor, minor six and ten, and the yeah. six-year-old was as into it as the ten-year-old. Yeah, so I, think get, I think we're getting. I think we're getting there. Yeah. All right. All right. Number four, uh, ultra violence, Gremlins. That's right. That's right. <laughs> God, I love Gremlins. I, I and it still works. Joe Dante, man, he knew how to put a picture together. Number three, the super ultra violent Indiana <laughs> Jones and the Temple of Doom. Matt, this this movie I found to be surprisingly divisive. Where do you land on on Temple of Doom? I, I you know, it. Uh, what, what were we saying a few minutes ago? It has some uh, problematic uh, elements mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. as I suppose several of the Indiana Jones movies do. But um, you know, there's some incredible sequences in it. You know, and uh, the, the special effects, the uh, the uh, the production design, the the the, the Temple of Doom itself. The uh, you know, there's some there's some good stuff in that one. You know, as a kid, it it did definitely creep me out. It definitely was yeah. very troubling. Um, yeah. I also loved Short Round. I always thought he ruled, and um, so it's been nice to see Kihu Kwan kind of his. I've been you know totally in favor of that uh, comeback. That's been wonderful to see. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's things to enjoy in Temple of Doom. I'm not one of those people, you know, now I feel like there's some people who are like, that's the best one. That's the best Indiana Jones. And I, that, yeah, that I can't abide. That's insane. No. I think Temple of Doom was definitely the first one that I saw though. Mm, uh, I don't think I'd seen any of the other ones before seeing that one. And as we've talked Mike about, was, we... Mike was very big in watching things uh, in chronology, so uh, yeah. he wanted to start That's with right. the, with the first <laughs> technically the first one place before technically the Raiders. You're right. Technically the prequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely Mike, Mike's very big that. on that. Yeah. yeah. As we've talked about <laughs> with other movies, specifically uh, Goodwill Hunting, before it took me a long time to become emotionally engaged by movies. I'd more just sort mm-hmm. of enjoyed them as like mm-hmm. a story or a novelty act. So like, I remember them pulling right. the heart out and I laughed. I thought the shit was hilarious. <laughs> People thought I was going to be a serial killer. And then I went home, you know, <laughs> nice movie. Number yeah. two, Beverly Hills cop. See, this is the thing about 1984 was an R rated action. Comedy could be the number two movie of the year. Like you cannot make this kind of money with R rated movies anymore. Um, Matt, where do you, where do you land on Beverly Hills cop? Good. I mean, I like it. It's a funny movie. It's an enjoyable, uh, you know, popcorn movie. Siskel and Ebert, not oh, fans. Not fans. Two thumbs down yeah. for Beverly Hills. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a notorious one on their uh, 
on their ledger. I remember, in fact, that in the Oscar show for that year, that when they each selected their least favorite nomination, Gene selected the original screenplay nomination for Beverly Hills Cop as his least favorite nomination of that year. Yeah, they were a petty little bitch. (laughs) He was. He was. His objection was the whole script is just smart Eddie Murphy, dumb everybody else. I'm like, man, have you seen like a W.C. Fields movie? Hello. What are we doing here? <laughs> and number one, dude, we haven't had a, 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 a hat trick in forever. And this one almost got there. Ghostbusters. If it just would have won that Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Almost got there. Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters number one. Well deserved. Huge. Huge commercial success and now here we are you know how many years later his kid making more damn sequels okay matt singer you ready to do a lightning round (laughs) sure all right we're gonna put five minutes on the clock i'm gonna throw a bunch more titles at you from the john willis film annual screen world uh say if you have something to say pass if you don't here we go david lynch's dune you know, I I uh I enjoy Dune. I think uh well I I prefer the new Dune. The original Dune is not without its merits, even if those merits are holy shit. Look at what in the what in the world is going on here? Uh, and I it never fails to like amuse and entertain me anytime I've seen that movie. Peter Hyams, twenty ten, the year we make contact. Twenty ten is a good movie that suffers the sin of being the sequel to a, one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, it doesn't really feel a lot like 2001, even though it has some of the same actors and sets in some cases, but like on its own terms, not a bad sci-fi movie uh, looks good. Peter Himes is a good director. You know, you know, it's maybe a three star, three and a half star movie. Uh, and it's just, it's not 2001. The directorial debut of an 80s icon, John Hughes, 16 Candles. You know, I I, I have seen all of his movies, but I don't, like, they never, they were never like, uh, you know, they. I was more of a, yeah, like a Ghostbusters kid, a Karate Kid kid. I don't think I was cool or socially acceptable enough to like John Hughes movies. So I don't, like... They're not really movies that I treasure. Like, there's some of them that I, I like. I like Ferris Bueller a lot, but, like, I don't have a really strong feelings about a lot of them. Maybe that's that's on me. So, yeah, I don't, like, I've seen it, but I don't, it's not something that I, it's not a text that I look to and draw inspiration from in my life or anything like that. <laughs> Robert Redford as The Natural. You know, I don't. I've seen the natural. I watched that was another HBO movie. I feel like that was on HBO Big time. Big 18 time, times yes. every single week. And I watched it that way as a kid a few times. And the, the ending with the sparks and running around the bases. And I, I've never seen it since then. And so, and I know it's, you know, supposedly, you know, that the ending is uh, questionable if you like the material or whatever, but yeah, I, I, it's not one. I don't know. Should I go back and revisit the natural? I have never had the urge to. No. The, the the golden glow of your memory is about all you need on that yeah. one. Okay. Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. This is another one that like would be like it was on my short list that it's such an interesting movie and like that what was it called the the version his you know he's going through all Cotton his movies. Cotton Club Encore baby. The Encore yeah. was super interesting. 
And sure was. Um, yeah, if you're if you're interested in Coppola, um, it's definitely worth watching. Not my favorite, like '80s Coppola. I love uh, one from the heart. That's the one that I always go back to. But good movie. Another good. Another good movie. Alex Cox's Repo Man. Repo Man is a movie that I came to like later. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I probably had seen it once. I, I might've seen it for the first time, maybe when I was working at Kim's video. Um, but immediately was like, yes, yes. It goes, this is, <laughs> yes, this, this, this is, this is for me. And I remember, I think we did that as a movie of the week at the dissolve. And I enjoyed, uh, like revisiting it then. And it has an amazing criterion collection, uh, disc that I have. That's definitely worth owning if you like that movie. Brian De Palma's Body Double. Okay, which one is Body Double? Because now I'm... Is that the one? Wait, wait, let me guess. It's the one with a body double. (laughs) That is the Melanie Griffith one uh, that that begins as a rear window ripoff. Okay, yes. Not my favorite De Palma. I mean, I have some De Palmas that I treasure as some of my all-time favorite movies. That's that one, not not as much. Uh... Terminator was not the only Arnold Schwarzenegger picture of 1984. We also had a little something called Conan the Destroyer. Conan the Destroyer, not a bad movie. If you, you know, it's a different movie than Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian is the John Milius Conan. It's bloody, it's violent, it's nihilistic, it's ph- philosophical, you know. It's uh, it's it's that. Conan the Destroyer is if you ever read Conan comics and you liked Conan comic books, That's the movie for you. It's the Conan, the comic book, the movie. And it's a little more cartoonish. It's a little broader. It's a little more, you know, kid friendly. Um, But if you're into that, it's a very good version of that kind of movie. Red Dawn from the aforementioned John Milius. I have definitely seen it, but I have not seen it since probably the either the early 90s or late 80s. Not never, never a favorite. Video games invaded the multiplex in '84 when in the films *The Last Starfighter* and *Cloak and Dagger*. I have, I don't think I've ever seen either one. *The Last Starfighter* is a movie that it feels like I should have seen a hundred times, and I have never seen it. <laughs> never seen it. And and finally, from Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, Val Kilmer in *Top Secret*. Yes, another one that was definitely on my my short list of. Beloved 1984 movies. Love the the Zuckers. Uh, there's that new book about Airplane that just came out, that oral history of Airplane. I'm very interested to read that. Top Secret, you know, like if any other comedy director made Top Secret, it would be like their greatest movie. It was just made by the <laughs> yes. Zuckers who made Airplane yep. and The Naked Gun and, you know, and, 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 you know, they wrote Kentucky Fried Movie. So it doesn't get the same play. But it is a and it's also like spoofing movies that like nobody remembers. Like it's like Elvis movies, which <laughs> is so niche. It's like almost the joke is right. almost on them in that case is like they chose to spoof something that people barely remembered in the 1984. Right. But it is a hilarious, hilarious movie. And that closes out our lightning round. Well done, Matt Singer. Uh, now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. 
Matt, where can people follow you on social media? Well, on the social medias that I'm still using, uh, I, I usually I'm either at Matt Singer or at Super Pulse, which was the embarrassing email address that I created when I was watching Siskel and Ebert, and I just kept it because it's easy it's easy to remember, and no one else would ever take it. But like on on Twitter X. Uh, it's it's Matt Singer. I'm on Blue Sky with Matt Singer on Instagram, where I've been putting a lot of fun, like Siskel and Ebert stuff. I believe I'm, yes. I'm Super Pulse. If you want to see some images and weird, weird detritus that I couldn't squeeze into the book, uh, like Siskel and Ebert in the pages of Detective Comics and things like that, you'll you'll find <laughs> that over there. Nice, Matt. One more time, the book is out on October twenty fourth. Yeah. The title, uh, the the very clever title is Opposable Hol- Thumbs: How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. October twenty fourth. Hard hardcover. Or ebook or audiobook. I did the audiobook myself. Nine hours and 35 minutes of this voice talking in your ears. <laughs> if you think this was good for one hour and just 20 like- minutes, just imagine eight more hours <laughs> and 10 minutes. Seriously, gang, highest recommendation. Pick it up on whatever your preferred format may be. I'm Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd, where you can find under my lists the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can the people find you? Uh, I'm going to say you can find me on the after show, which I think we've been dr- uh, dramatically underselling. <laughs> These after shows started with Bailey being like, hey, man, let's like do a little extra. You know, we'll talk for 15 minutes. We'll just kind of, you know, kill the lightning round. We'll just kind of get through whatever we didn't do in the lightning round. At this point, they're a whole other fucking episode. We can't get <laughs> off the fucking mics for less than 45 minutes. We end up getting into a lot more sort of personal stuff. We end up saying things that might end up being a little bit controversial on the public feed. But, you know, we've been Mm -hmm. friends for a long time. So every now and then we'll work out some of the private shit uh, in the the after show. And I just like it really has turned into a whole nother episode of the show. And frequently uh, uh, our guests are, you know, talkers. And so they go a little long and we end up having to pull stuff. This is just on my mind right now because we pulled like 30 minutes out of the Joe Lynch episode, not because it wasn't (laughs) great, but just because, you know, we have this sort of about an hour dictum. So like this week's, you know, the, the, the after show we're about to put out is more like its own, you know, an extra episode than anything else, because there's so much Joe that we pulled out and dropped in because it was great stuff that we just pulled out of the regular show. So you can find me on the after show, which you can get to through an Apple premium subscription. It's right there. They already have your credit card information. You just have to tell them to start sending us some money. Or you can go on Substack where you can listen to the regular show, the after show, and uh, do lots of reading. There we go. All right, Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1984? My favorite movie of 1984 is a very silly little thing called Dubidio. 
and uh, it's it's so like we all love After Hours, right? Mm-hmm. But like the perspective in After Hours is a guy who doesn't live there, right? And that's fine because Scorsese was making the movie; it wasn't his crowd, right? It make most people in the world didn't live in that in the environment of After Hours, so right. it makes sense for that movie to come from the perspective of a guy who didn't live there. If you want to fucking if you want to see After Hours from the perspective of the mayor of that bullshit neighborhood, <laughs> watch fucking Dubai. It is such a cool movie, but it's about this guy who's trying to make a movie about um, Joan Jett, right? So, like, it's sort of right at the very end of the Runaways Mm -hmm. period, and so he's Mm -hmm. making sort of a movie about Joan Jett because she's super cool, but he's a a fuck-off. And a, a lunatic, and he's and he's and he's girl crazy, and he's chasing all these girls. Right. But he's got an editor, and so he's busting his editor's balls to finish the movie. And he's like, "It's all there. You can't see it." And he just gives him like you know a bunch of bullshit, terrible like screaming instructions. And then he leaves for hours and hours, and it's up to to the editor to finish the movie. And it really just feels like the two sides of my brain yelling at each other. Uh, uh, you know, it really feels very, very personal in an odd sort of a way for a movie that was made in an environment I've never been in and at a time when I was right. eight years old. Uh, but if you want to see, you know, what the mayor of After Hours would make, watch DeBedio. It's a super cool, fun, and it's relatively short. How about you? There we go. So I had to, this one has a convoluted release, so I had to double check and look it up, but it was theatrically released in 1984, even though it was made for television and played on TV in 82, and then came out on videotape and laser disc in 1983, but theatrically in 1984, the complete Beatles, the documentary account of the, of the Fab Four, the, the lads from Liverpool and their rise to the top and their, their years on top of the world. Um, it is such, it's just imprinted on me because we taped it when it was on television. Again, you know, when I was a kid, Matt, and you had like the 10 movies that you just watched over and over again. And I watched the complete Beatles so many times that I can like still recite Malcolm McDowell's narration by heart. I can still remember (laughs) factoids from George Martin's interviews. Um, The Beatles themselves did not participate in the movie. They got a lot of people sort of around them to, 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 to talk and some people who sort of analyze them but there's a lot of great footage there's a lot of really incredible performance stuff in it and it really is a terrific entry point into the Beatles phenomenon it is really fucking hard to see because in the mid 90s when the Beatles were making their authorized biography the Beatles anthology Paul McCartney bought the rights to the complete Beatles and fucking buried it so that there wasn't a competing Beatles documentary and you know what I like the Beatles anthology there's a lot of great stuff in the Beatles anthology the complete Beatles is better it's more concise it tells you more stuff uh, it's, it's cleaner. Uh, and it's also the movie that sort of taught me the first things I knew about the Beatles. So if you can track it down, uh, if you have a laser disc player or a VHS deck, uh, and I have both, uh, track it down or come over to the house. You can watch it with me. Uh, but that's my favorite for 1984. Thank you again, Matt Singer. Thank you. Gene mentioned, and Gene mentioned the complete Beatles in the, in that spinal tap review. I don't know if yes, I mentioned he did. that. <laughs> he was saying you can learn almost as much about rock music by watching spinal tap as you can watching the complete Beatles. So there you go. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was 
was a very good year. 